I'm Billy. I'm Drew. And this is Pilot Club. Welcome back. Still no sight of nine innings to Cheyenne on the horizon. <laughs> no, Paramount Dads is not yet launched. <laughs> I, I feel like someone should start a GoFundMe to get that show made. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The Baseball Western. Just for those who didn't hear last week's episode, I was taken in by um, Metacritic's April Fool's Day prank, just listing all these amazing sounding shows that I actually spent ages researching yeah. and trying to find. Yeah. Under we were both taken in. You, by you it. fell for it, hook, yeah, line, yeah. and sinker. I did. I did. I've been thinking. I've been thinking about that. Embarrassing. Kevin, and one of them was a Kevin Costner baseball western. I've been thinking about that show all week. Like, yeah. It just sounded. Yeah. It sounded incredible. Well, it's vaguely plausible in this in this uh, modern peak TV era. I mean, it was completely plausible, and <laughs> in anybody would have been taken in by it. <laughs> Let's not go nuts. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, so on to our first series mm. for this week, and this week we're looking at a Netflix, Netflix series called Beef. Mm. So Beef is a dramedy. Uh, it was created by Lee Sung Jin for Netflix, although it was produced by A24. It stars Stephen Yuen mm-hmm. as Danny Cho, a underemployed handyman. Who contractor. Is, that's, that's true. Contractor. Slash contractor. Who is involved in a road rage incident with Ali Wong, mm. uh, Ali Wong's character, who's uh, called uh, Amy Lau. Now, the series obviously charts their progressive deterioration uh, in their relationship um, with various different petty and, and large gestures that are made in a series of, you know, escalating cycle probably, of conflict. Probably worth saying they don't know each other at all. No. So it starts off as a random, just a random road rage incident and only at the end of the pilot do they make contact again for the first time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, so after this... Um, in you know very you know massive conflagration that occurs, uh, we learn a little bit more about each of the characters and how this road rage incident you know um, was a, an inflection point for mm. both of them. So we learn that that Danny is you know a seriously chronically depressed um, you know man. Uh, he is stressed by his his brother, who is is something of a of a uh, parasite on him, who he lives with lives with in a, a motel room. Um, in a motel that was formerly owned by their parents. Mm. And their parents have lost this motel because their their cousin, who later appears in the episode, was engaged in some illegal counterfeiting activities, mm. which resulted in them them uh, you know losing losing possession of this property. So they're struggling financially. He's struggling emotionally, and this this road range incident is the, just the, the straw that breaks the camel's back for him. How, how good was that scene? Yeah, like I think that has to be one of the best episode openings we've seen. Yeah, maybe the best road rage scene I've ever yeah. watched on starts, TV or film. It starts in the middle of the action. Yeah. <laughs> the road rage scene is incredibly well shot. Uh, it's there's also both of them are provocateurs yep. in it as well. So yep. you're not really sure. There's no clear antagonist, no uh, protagonist, and and the way that this episode is split as well divides your loyalties as well. So we learn a bit more about Amy. Um, ostensibly Amy is a less sympathetic character because she's incredibly wealthy she's married into wealth Mm. her husband is a Japanese sculptor and he comes from a lineage of Japanese artists and his father was a famous artist Um, so she's under incredible stress though because she's trying to sell her her we might describe it as a plant business like a plant design business yeah what's it called the Koyo house is the name Um, of it what's the name that Japanese art of tiny plants um, do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yes, um, yes. That, that's bonsai. Bonsai, yeah. bonsai it's, it's, plants. It's like a, it's like a artistic riff on bonsai. Yeah, is what it's like it feels an artisanal like. plant artisanal pot bonsai. store. Yep. Yeah, mm. so she's she's under a lot of stress because she's trying to sell this mm. this business to a wealthy benefactor mm. um, who's insisting that she goes through an extended due diligence process, and she's also under stress because she's she's raising a young daughter who has anxiety. And the spark in her marriage is starting to dwindle. Mm. So this, for her as well, is a major inflection point. Mm. And this, this whole pilot really chronicles the two, the two characters' life arcs, both before and after mm. um, this particular incident. So we, they, they, their narratives come intersect again at the end mm. in you know i think a really funny way a really, a really amazing way a really yeah, yeah like unsurprising a very petty way mm. but a way that you can see uh being such a violation that obviously this is going to yep. this is going to incite you know a, a greater sort of conflict spiral it's maybe from i mean maybe because you know, spoiler alert but 
the way it comes together, this is a spoiler, kind of captures those class differences too, right? So he comes to her house, you know, he is a contractor, but he, he kind of says, that, oh, he's kind of posing as well. He says, I've noticed that there are some water issues with your house, can I come in? And she shows him around and he almost kind of flirts with her mm. and draws out her insecurity about her husband. And then he promptly urinates all over the bathroom <laughs> and leaves. So like that yeah. class difference you see figured in the way it ends. Um, I just... I thought there was something so amazing about a series that acts with starts with this supreme act of pettiness yeah, yeah. from both parties. <laughs> like, and I was kind of rooting for both of them, like the way yeah. they just commit to the car chase and the yeah. way in which they commit to, I don't know, the just the extravagance of the the road rage. Yeah, it was really fantastic. Yeah. Um, it was interesting too. Like, it, there's a really visceral sense of status anxiety here mm. as well. So, mm. you know, as you said. On the one hand, you know, he's, there's some really great depictions of his life as a contractor. So, mm. as you said, he he doesn't have any property of his own. He lives in the motel that formerly belonged to his parents. And there's some really great scenes of him as a contractor going to work for people and basically begging for employment. Yeah. And, but you know, kind of securitizing the properties of wealthy people instead of acquiring his own property. Mm. So we see him installing a door cam. He has to kind of beg to come back and be the contractor who lops down their tree to make sure it doesn't fall on their house. So there's that kind of status anxiety on his part. But also she has a different kind of... I mean, it, it, something, something that kind of happens a lot, I feel, is like you have... And this may develop more in the show. You have this situation where both the leads are trying to acquire real physical things. So he's trying to acquire property and she's trying to acquire a business. But they're met, they're met with these really intangible forms of labour or intangible commodity objects that set, like seem to be the right way to get things. Even if they, so his brother isn't a crypto, he's mm. a gamer, and his brother actually seems to be more financially successful than he is at some level, even if he doesn't share the money. But it all takes place in this weird virtual field. And similarly, she, to get the kind of business deal that she wants she has to go through these really weird kind of ceremonies. So she has to go to this dinner where everyone eats foam mm. and everyone eats this kind of faux food. So it's like they both want these, need these really kind of concrete things, you know, like property and business, but they're met with this world in which commodity objects and, yeah, and just, you know, capital has taken on this imaginary virtual quality. Mm. And I wonder if that'll become a thing... And that, that's where the beef stuff comes in too. So, you know, the, the beef stuff often happens where those two worlds collide. So there's a great scene where he's standing at the property he wants to buy for his family. He's talking to the realtor. Well, he can't get onto the realtor. So the sense of that physical property is slipping away from him. And as he's doing it on his phone, he's seeing his crypto investment crash. Mm. And he starts scoffing, binging beef burgers, mm. like one after another. So it's like I don't, I don't know what'll happen later on the track down the track, but all the beef stuff kind of happens. Like even at the beginning, he buys a barbecue, presumably to you know barbecue meat, barbecue beef. Oh, he's he's doing it to to suffocate himself. Yes. So it's a self harm gesture. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the yeah, charcoal exactly. burning. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Stoves. But also he, he we find out that he's returned it many times before and taken bought it again. So there's a sense in which. On the one hand, he's buying this physical object, but what's actually important, what has value is that more intangible process or that more immaterial process of buying and returning it and buying and returning it. So it's just, it's weird. It's like the characters are striving for something in the real world, the physical world, the world of property and businesses, but they're thwarted by this stuff that seems to be happening in this other virtual kind of plane mm. and maybe maybe it'll go somewhere with that mm, mm. yeah i think there's there's definitely one of the effective most effective things about this mm. this uh this story is it does expose the cleavages in class mm. even within certain uh, immigrant groups so i mean this is largely written by asian americans mm. starring asian americans most of the cast is korean mm. uh, there's japanese influence as well and it seems like all of those qualities of, you know, hypercapitalism are particularly mm. exacerbated, mm. you know, when you're an, an immigrant, uh, because, mm. you know, you are in, you are cast adrift from mm. all sorts of social safety nets. So, so all of the the acts of kind of radical self renovation that you need to do mm. 
in this kind of hypercapitalist society uh, fall on your shoulders. So there's there's definitely a, a reflexive rage associated with yeah. this, some of this. And you see, I think as mm. well, like there's there's a real cleavage between where uh, all the neighbourhoods in, in LA and mm. uh, the Calabasas mansion where, <laughs> yeah. where she lives yep. with her husband is all, you know, big sleek lines, giant rooms mm-hmm. with characters just dwarfed by them. But again, her, her wealth is just pales into insignificance compared to her, her benefactor's wealth, which is serious mm. Hollywood Hills wealth as well. But uh, he lives in a, you know, a, you know, a flea, flea-bidden motel. Um, and I guess there's a, there's a question here about where are these cleavage is leading to? Mm. And it's leading to, I guess, an increasing, increasing privatisation of formerly public space. Yeah. So the only where do these different classes? Where is the public space? Mm. Well, the public space is the road. So this is where this is the only place in which we have sort of class interchange, and this and this is where you know this this road rage act is kind of an almost a return of the repressed. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, and I think like it's funny you say that because I mean, this reminded me so much of the film Falling Down, like yeah, the Michael yeah, Douglas film. It, it certainly has those elements, and it's it's interesting because. Yeah, you know, at one level, what the characters are going through is not that bad. You know, she may not get the business. He's struggling to buy property. I mean, you know, at some level, who isn't in LA unless you're ultra wealthy? So at one level, both of their concerns are kind of petty concerns. And what you have is the kind of petty, you know, and they're both middle class, mm. you know, extreme ends of middle class. But as you said, she's not upper class in Hollywood Hill sense, and he wouldn't call him working class. So... At some level, you have a kind of a banal, petty bourgeois rage, which is nearly always the province of white dudes. Mm. You know, it's a mm. kind of white vigilante. I mean, it, just, it reminded me too of what was that Russell Crowe film we saw where, like, there's some minor road rage incident, and all of a sudden it yeah. becomes like a diatribe unhinged. about the unhinged. <laughs> so it's like it takes this formula, the kind of you know rage against society, that is so much a part of. You know, it's like such a white genre mm. and kind of denatures it from within. And you're right, like the road is the only place that can really play out. And it reminded me of, remember Falling Down opens with like that really long pan. You're like, I think it starts with a shot of a radio, then it gradually pulls back to the car, then gradually pulls back to a traffic, you know, traffic jam, and gradually mm. pulls back to the highway. So all this escalating rage and this sense of being thwarted in your private life spills out in the highway. Mm. So... I mean, it's something, yeah, so it's something else, like, I wonder if, I wonder if highways will become a part of it. But, yeah, like, and there is a tacit, maybe not even tacit, race thing going on, right? I mean, he, like I said, he securitises a house of wealthy white people, mm. and she's kind of exoticised by wealthy white people. Yeah, and she's definitely. she's fetishised by, both by her fans and by her prospective benefactor, or yeah. benefit, you know, the, the person who's going to kind of buy a company. So... Yeah, it's interesting. Like it reminded me, it's like a loose kind of connection, but something like Get Out, which takes like the suburban home invasion genre. I mean, that's such a white genre, mm. but it's kind of denatured by having it seen it through an African-American lens. And, you know, like one of the most famous scenes in Falling Down is the scene, and the scene where he really starts to flip out, like the catalyst scene after the highway scene is when he goes into the Korean convenience store. Yeah. And like there's some... <laughs> There's some ridiculous, like the Korean guy can't change a 10 or something. Like it's that simple. Yeah. But all of a sudden Michael Douglas is like, this is a problem with yeah. the society today. So <laughs> the Korean person, the immigrant, becomes a backdrop for his kind of white rage. Yeah. Whereas here, even by having like the sheer fact of taking that trope of the, you know, petty bourgeois rage, you know, vigilante, you know, petty bourgeois is vigilante. The very fact of taking that trope and putting it in the mouth and the voices of Korean, Asian-American people rather than having them as a backdrop the can for yeah. is, is kind of inherently funny yeah, yeah, and yeah. inherently absurd in a way that really... It's like it's like, it's like you're falling down if the main character was the Korean yes. convenience store attendant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's no, a nice version yeah. of the, your expectations. That thing is yeah, crazy. I mean, literally, it's like Michael Douglas. It's like, you can't change a five. Yeah. This is the problem with America today. I'm the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. I think as we've got that hollowed out hollowed out sense of a kind of public sphere, sphere mm. of a kind of body politic mm. and what what you know what resides in that in that vastly diminished mm. public sphere at the moment it's just it's rage yeah yeah you know it's it's political you know polarization mm. it's 
people shouting at each other. Mm. It's not polite discourse. So that's what, you know, this is this show I think is thematizing. It's almost a sense like of a really diminished public sphere that's impoverished, yeah. you know, residual and what little of it is left is filled with people yelling at each other. <laughs> and that's it's really interesting, isn't it? Because something that defied my expectations about this was I thought that there'd be some kind of build-up to the road rage incident. So it literally starts with him at the supermarket leaving, getting in the car, and someone cutting him off. Yeah. And and I thought this would that would be like a kind of prelude to the main road rage incident. That that would be foreshadowing it. There was going to be a little moment now in the car park, and then we're going to get the big road rage incident sometime later in the episode. Mm. But we're right in it. So yeah. as you said, like there is no. I mean, it starts with an argument with the guy at the supermarket. As soon as he's in the car park. The incident, the road rage incident happens. There is no public sphere here that's not antagonistic. Yeah, like it doesn't exist. I mean, it's almost like the last, you know, partner Carl's American. The last couple of times I've been in the states, I've felt very precarious in public space. And yeah. you know, just take one example: we went to see Sisters at a local New Jersey multiplex, and the next day there was a bomb scare there. So that kind yeah. of. But now watching this, it's like now I'm scared of road rage as well. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. Like, yeah, it's a lot of repressed, barely repressed violence. Yeah. yeah that occupies this this space where people have exchange. And you see that, I think, even in all the interactions that he has in that in that service economy. Mm. Uh, they're, they're, full, they're very passive aggressive. Yep. You know, he's he's working on a on a, uh, a white person's house and mm. he's installing an intercom and then while he's you know after he basically, you know, is caging for work, you know, the door closes and you hear, mm. uh, you know, a passive aggressive exchange inside that says, when are we firing him? Mm. He's so annoying. Mm. So already just every interaction. His in position space, is an invader. Yeah, is, that's right. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. right. So, yeah, a lot of this series, uh, I've watched actually quite a bit of it now because oh, cool. I found it so compelling. Mm. Um, a lot of it does, you know, hinge on those those thresholds of doors, doorways, mm. entranceways, mm. Uh, lifts, mm. you know, these these barriers and walls that are put up you know, to, to wall different classes off, to, mm. to, to artificially enshrine this kind of pervasive status anxiety. Yeah, yeah. Even if it's, you know, ridiculous and it's satirizing mm. a lot of, you know, the, the habitus of, of what the wealthy and their, um, their, their mores. So, and that's, that's maybe why the ending works so perfectly, isn't it? Because he, he comes into her house under the guise of a contractor, under the guise of being inferior to her mm. and she he gives her that chouissance that that you know that frisson of she's you, know, you can see her thinking am i going to sleep with the contractor mm. am i going to flirt with the contractor mm. like he makes her feel like she's doing something naughty you know she's she's stepping out of her class role and then he abruptly turns her back on her as you know when he urinates in her bathroom yeah it's just such a great scene at the end when he she runs out after him and he jumps in the car and runs away yeah like it, not runs away, but drives away so yeah it's, yeah, well, the series is full of it, full of moments like that. Yeah. as as the cycle of violence great. Uh, escalates. So yes. you know, we've seen this sort of story before. Mm. You know, the War of the Roses and mm. yeah. even the Banshees of Inisherin. Yeah. Um, Again, but, very but, white middle class. Yeah, text, and some Banshees, of them are but... more more clumsily allegorical. Mm. Um, whereas this this has really genuine, authentic characters I identified with mm. immediately, mm. Um, which was so well drawn. The performances are great. And like I said, in an era where like there's so much, you know, so much maudlin television and so much television that's, you know, heavy-handedly significant. I mean, obviously this is significant. It just doesn't, you know, it's not heavy-handed about it. But in that kind of television environment, just like I love seeing a show where the characters are driven by pettiness. Yeah. Just like just lean into that pettiness. Just yeah. commit to that pettiness. <laughs> and yeah, it was... As you said, like it's like it's like this is a public sphere where nothing exists anymore except collisions and shouting. Yeah, <laughs> and it's yeah, yeah, it's really it's the same logic, isn't it? As like shooters, it's yeah. the same logic as a series about shooters. It's yeah. that sense of yeah, public space yeah. is just yeah. Well, the vigilante, the, the vigilante quality of this obviously mm. is a is an index of the way that the state has really just receded from mm. you know from the provision of basic services and support to people and it's true so. isn't it because like so many shooters like the, the places they go after are public schools abortion clinics you know like mental health facilities like mm. the, the, you look at them together like shooters and it, it's attack it's an attack on public facilities yeah and on the very idea of public space and so this is yeah it's interesting because the same thing's happening here but you also have a group of people asian americans who are edged out of public space to begin with mm. who are edged out of public discourse so it's like mm. The precariousness of public space, the people who already 
have limited visibility and exposure. Yeah. It's almost like this is this is like the dark, the doppelganger of everything everywhere all at once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is it's like true. rage everywhere all at once. True. Or like or like if no nowhere ever, so you have to kind of come into existence through violence or something. Yeah. It feels like it's the same it's the same statement in some ways made negatively. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, I that's thought, great. Yeah. Huh? I thought this was fantastic. Yeah. I think this is probably this is one of the first drop everything and watch it shows yep. of the year. Yep. So for that reason I'm I'm an absolutely hard I'm a hard into I've I've watched almost you know, the whole series in yep. a few days. So yep. that's that's how compelling I found this. I only watched it for the first time yesterday, but I'm with you. I'm I'm a hard in this is appointment viewing. Okay, on to our next series, and we're doing an Australian series mm. now, but because of the Netflix platform, it may well get global exposure. Mm. The series is called Well Mania. It's an Australian comedy drama. It was co-created by Bridget Delaney and Benjamin, Benjamin Law, comedian Benjamin, Benjamin Law for Netflix. It's actually based on a memoir, um, and it's called Well Mania, Misadventures in the Search of Wellness. Okay. So I, I vaguely thought that Celeste Barber, who was quite famous for Instagram parodies, had some role in the writing of this, but no, it's just a happy uh, coincidence. It's funny, I, I fundamentally misunderstood what it was. Like, from a distance, I thought it was like a sketch comedy. I thought oh, it was going to really? be like a... Because you know how Celeste Barber's comedy is kind of like essentially sketch sketches. Like, yeah. I thought it was going to be like a series of sketches about the wellness industry because there's a there's an ad promo where she goes into an F45 centre. Oh, okay. It's, it's yeah. really good. I mean, I think the promo is almost better than the show. But it felt like it was one of a sketch, many sketches that would be part of constitute the show. So oh, okay. I, I, I was surprised. I didn't realize it was going to be a continuous narrative kind yeah. of thing. Well, no, it's, it's got certainly a, a long form story. Uh, so it concerns Liv Healy, who's played by Celeste Barber. She's a New York based food writer, but she has an unhealthy lifestyle. So is that 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 paradox? Ah. <laughs> so recently, she receives an opportunity um, to uh, return to Australia. Her best friend's fortieth uh, birthday. And being back in Sydney, Australia, she gets to sort of try to reconcile herself with her past and also with her unhealthy eating habits. So, I feel like um, it's, like, it's like Sydney unhealthy eating habits. Is this like me in two thousand and eight? <laughs> I feel like I, I immediately felt like you know when am I going to start seeing people like me in media? <laughs> when am I going to start seeing like me in the big screen? What I've been through and <laughs> well, yeah, she so. The uh, the wash up of this episode is she receives you know news of a major health scare mm. that her cholesterol is way too high. Also, because she's trying to get residency in the United States. Yes, at a point where before same sex marriage was legalized, Colin, I spent a lot of time doing that. I won the won the green card lottery. Um, okay, so so the so combination. Yes, listeners might know that I yeah I got American residency because of a diversity visa. So the combination of Sydney, <laughs> unhealthy eating habits. <laughs> And going for American residency, I was like, I mean, for the for the first part of the episode, I found they it really get me. like for the first part of the episode, I found it really annoying. Then halfway through, I was like, I am her. <laughs> I told you the moment was, you know, the moment when she drinks the orange juice with that really ridiculous swizzle straw. Yeah, yeah. At that. that point, I was like, I just embraced it. I'm like, I am her. This is this is me. This is me. This is me. This is me. I'm I'm not going to be ashamed of it. Yeah. Well, of all the premises for a series, the idea that you have to reduce your cholesterol yeah. levels in four weeks in order to get a, a US green card yeah. to take up your dream job mm. as a as a uh, food mm. a food critic on a major cooking show mm. is, is one of the one of the most implausible ones. Can I also say. say that like there's a scene here where she has to go for her consulate medical appointment. Yeah. And did you have to do that? I did have to do that. Really? And it, it, it really rings true. Like it's very wow. it's a very did like they check your cholesterol levels? They they that was fine at that <laughs> by that point. Um but it was it was pretty austere kind of process. Wow, like it was okay. very it wasn't like any other medical appointment. Like it was very much it was like I was going to military service or really? something. So wow. just the way they capture the the kind of the imperiousness of that medical examination at, you know, in a consular context very much like like I felt like the doctor was just checking whether I was a terrorist oh, really as wow. much as whether I was in a, give me a clean bill of health wow. yeah, yeah so yeah. you had all sorts of tests blood tests and yeah blood tests wow. you have to have all kinds of um Gee, okay well yeah. I thought it was I thought it was an implausible premise but I was proven wrong no it's I um, was wrong just because you haven't lived it doesn't mean that it doesn't doesn't happen like I said I feel like when am I going to see me when am I going to see my story on the big screen yeah well the, the first the first you know, text that called that called uh this called to mind was train wreck well, I was going to say, um, and look, for what it's worth, that is Amy Schumer's 
worst film. Um, it goes, <laughs> I feel pretty snatched and train wreck. Just shout out for Snatched. I feel like Snatch gets such a bad rap, but I've, I've watched it many times. It's yeah. a great late it's work pretty, from Goldie Hawn. It's great. Snatch, but I feel, I feel pretty as a masterpiece. But yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you know, the penny dropped pretty quickly why I like Celeste Barber. I mean, it's exactly the same. She's the Australian Amy Schumer. Yeah. And I think specifically, like, both Celeste Barber and Amy Schumer have a particular niche. And the niche is that they're both really good looking. They're just not Hollywood good looking. Mm. You know, so it's that, it's that space between good looking, being good looking in a regular everyday sense and being good looking, you know, like in a Julia Roberts sense. Yeah. And so it's that weird space where, you know, like I said, yeah, they're not top tier celebrity material, but they're also better than your average person on the street it's in that niche that they kind of find their comedy yeah and it's a kind of it's a weird style of comedy because it's very self-deprecating about looks even though they're both you know, yeah they're, they're, was a sort of self-deprecation about looks that you couldn't really make if you were really genuinely very very yeah it's not about ugly it's, it's not about ugly visibility <laughs> no there's no real ugly visibility no, no. here it's about bodies and appearances that slightly yeah. don't conform with the, yeah. the dominant yeah. you know instagram you know filtered archetype and it's it is absolutely instagram comedy isn't yeah it? like this is yeah. just so it's yeah for that reason i kind of i was endeared to it just because for me amy schumer is you know she's like larry david or or jerry seinfeld or paula poundstone she's just one of those comedians where just immediately i'm laughing regardless of content yeah. so the echoes of amy schumer here kind of i was I was in. Like I said, I had this transition where you I was enjoy, like, uh, "Hot, hot mess comedy." I was like, "Oh, I do, yeah." Um, I mean, wait till we do tiny beautiful things next week. I mean, Catherine Hahn as hot mess. I mean, it's fantastic. But yeah, I mean, I had that transition where I was like, "Oh, she's so annoying." Who does she remind me of? Oh, yeah, me. <laughs> um, one thing I would say here is like, this was like, it was kind of like, kind of endearingly parochial as well. Yeah, like, it I was. mean. The American accents were bad. <laughs> this is Australian. They, they weren't fooling anyone. <laughs> I also thought that um, her best friend's husband gave me like Diver Dan vibes. Yeah, massive true, dive from true. Sea Change. True. How That's bad right. a character was Diver Dan? <laughs> Just rewatching Sea Change recently, I was like, he didn't was, give a lot. What was his appeal? He was a place where yeah, parochial sort of blokiness lived. He was just laconic for the sake of being laconic. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, it is refreshing to see a show shot in yeah, Sydney. I agree. And given the kind of glossy Netflix treatment, I agree. It makes you realise, you know, the city's quite beautiful, and it would easily it would easily pass the kind of Instagram filter criteria if it was if it was located overseas. And it was kind of funny, like the story is, you know, she's on the one hand, you have this story is like she she wants to be in the exclusive kind of food world, but she's you know abject because she eats too much. But it's also kind of like. Her, maybe abject's a strong word, but her kind of messiness around food felt like it was kind of transplanted onto Sydney as well. So it felt like it was like, it's a love letter to eating unhealthily in the midst of a world of high-powered cuisine writers. It's also kind of a love letter to Sydney, yeah. you know, in the midst of a world driven by the status of New York. Like yeah, it just yeah, felt true, like, true. I felt like that rhythm of her aspiring to be a serious food writer in, you know, in Brooklyn but actually like, you know, crashing on some couch and eating chocolate eggs in Newtown. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Like, it made me feel very... It was like... It's like in, in the series, Sydney is like the unhealthy food object. Yeah, true, true. You know, that she can't quite kick in, in a way that... <laughs> made, it kind of... It, I, I felt kind of endeared to the Sydney way presented Sydney. The regression. Like, this yeah. wasn't this wasn't an aspirational Sydney series. No, no, certainly not. It's not trying no. to present Sydney... Like, it's no. not like, say, what is it, The Twelve, which is trying to present this, you know, immaculate quality television cross-section of sydney no it's not like sydney jingoism no this is like sydney is a pad, pad you crash at yeah and like where you're getting your life it's, together it's downward mobility it's sydney downward, <laughs> downward mobility yeah which i kind of like i kind of like that like it was it, it was again it was just true it's like true to the experience of someone who aspires for new york or for a world city but for whom sydney is still kind of home yeah yeah look i think there's certainly a place for this type of mm. light insubstantial comedy mm. In the in the broader Australian televisual landscape, mm. given so much of Australian television mm. is quite is either very soapy mm. or quite leaden, yep. leadenly serious. Yep. So this is occupying a place where a lot of Netflix content is is hitting. But in terms of the local content quality, mm. this this is one of the first ones I think that you might say fits that bill. The other one be bump on Stan. Yep, it's one of those you know quite endearing, yep. low stakes kind of you know goes down easy. 
type I th- series. I look, I have to say, Bump is a little earnest for me. <laughs> Bump is a little earnest. I, I, I kind of, I, I lean towards Fisk. Like, I prefer Fisk is my kind of. For me, Fisk and maybe Utopia, maybe it's just a generational thing. But for yeah. me, Fisk is the gold standard. Yeah. This I thought was my favourite Australian comedy since Fisk. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. And that's that's saying a lot because <laughs> you know that I. I love Fisk. I, I do. I've I watched do. so much Fisk. Like, <laughs> I do. At the time when, like, just I get home in the day, I just watch a Fisk episode every. Helen Tudor Fisk. Yeah, and there's only at that point there are only six episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I just watched Fisk over <laughs> and over loop. again. Like on a loop. Carl, Carl would come into the lounge room. He's like, "Are you are you still watching Fisk?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, I cannot, I cannot." So, so will you be binging World Mania? I kind of feel like I will be. Like, I feel like it's. I, I only watched the first episode a short while ago, but um. <laughs> Well, something I'll say too, like, you know, something I've mentioned, we mentioned the podcast is that like just something, it's no denigration of the comedians, but like, I'm not massively a fan of YouTube turned television comedy. So mm. shows like Broad City and Issa Rae, um, Issa Rae is Insecure, like all incredible comedian showrunners, but just the style of the YouTube, you know, vlog kind of comedy transplanted TV, I'm not that into. I think the same can sometimes be true for kind of Instagram stuff. But yeah. This was one case where I thought like an Instagram icon genuinely like made the transition well and well, had, had screen presence. I think that's partly because it's based on a memoir. So it is yeah. it is a plausible long form narrative. Yeah, that's true. And she's she is just a charismatic lead yeah. for a series that's not, not written by her. Yeah, that's so. true. So it's not so it has more substance than Subs- that, those types of series, perhaps, that yeah. are made based on a shorts. Show. Yeah. It's kind of adjacent to her voice in that sense, rather yeah, than yeah, just yeah. being her voice. Um, and look, I thought the screenplay was... It was okay. <laughs> like, there was a lot of Aussie swearing humour, but just it was more like just her energy, her bingey energy. Yeah. Her bingey, cruisy energy, <laughs> crashing from one Sydney, you know, meal to the next. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I was kind of in. <laughs> I was kind of in. Yeah, it was. It was innocuous. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was watchable. It was bingeable. <laughs> you're 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 coming back for oats, aren't you? I'm coming back for oats. <laughs> I'm coming back for oats. How about you? Uh, look, look, I'm on the fence. I yeah. think this is there's a lot of there's a lot of content, yeah. a lot of content to get through. So little time. Yeah. So I don't know whether I'll return to it, but I I appreciate its existence. It's fair like a warm bath. It like is for, for when for when you need it, yeah. and it's you know like just say you get home and. You know, yeah, five or six cream eggs. Yeah, you you don't you know you feel like you're not quite in the mood for extrapolations. Like you don't like you know you're not quite in the mood for something that sublime or that that profound. You're not quite moved. Have you watched any more Flashman, by the way? Love Flashman. Did you ever watch anything more than the pilot for that? Yeah, I watched a few episodes. I enjoyed Flashman, but beyond that first chunk, that first chunk, that first. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I enjoyed the way it subverted the uh, the insular. New York Upper East Side archetype. So yeah, I enjoyed it. It's still, that's still so, it's still, it's still so troubling. Still rankles. Still rankles. It's, it's still, it's still so troubling to me that you like Flushman. I just, yeah, I, it's it, yeah, it, it cognitive shift. But we we move on. Yep. we move on. So Australian train wreck. Yep. you're in. I mean, yes, yes, but I with that provision again, I don't like train wreck <laughs> being like the gold standard for English humour. I Australian, feel, I feel pretty. I feel, mm, snatched. <laughs> I feel pretty. I feel pretty is one of the great, the great class films of our time. It's about, it's about looksism. Like in, in, in years to come, when everyone's talking about looksism, just people look back at I feel pretty in front of front of curve. It'll be the it'll be it'll be the trailblazer. <laughs> have you actually seen Snatched? I have. It okay. was really bad. No, that's not true. <laughs> it's great late Goldie Horn masterpiece. It's picaresque. So look. I'm in for Wellmania. I'm going to binge Wellmania. <laughs> hard in for Snatched. Check out Snatched. <laughs> Snatched, is, Snatched is a masterpiece. Okay, on to our next show. So this is yet another instalment in um, a genre that I think I've been thinking of as the dad bod genre. It's becoming, <laughs> becoming pretty dominant. It's about a middle-aged white dude. I mean, I guess in the... I feel like just in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, the midlife crisis was such a trope of film, television, everyday life, right? Yeah. And I feel like... You can historicize that now as the boomer in crisis mode. Yeah. It was a real boomer. It's like boomers who've been part of the liberation of the 60s and 70s, settle into conservative conventional lifestyles in the 80s, produces a cognitive dissonance in the 90s. Yeah. And so you see it, it's a real, and it had a real solemnity and austerity around it. Partly because I guess this was the first time that, you know, men had left families en masse like that. So, you know, in the 
earlier, mid, mid-century. I mean, men had affairs, men carried on, but, you know, there was a kind of more of a sense that marriage was something you stuck at. Yeah. So you have true. this, you know, this proliferation of divorces and midlife crises as in the 90s, but also as tropes. So you have something like the First Wives Club. Mm. Um, yeah. But also you have well, the erotic thriller and the neo-noir of the 90s, which is nearly always about this midlife crisis in some yeah. form or another. It's true. Epitomised by Michael Douglas. Yes. And Michael yes. Douglas is the reptilian boomer in crisis. <laughs> I feel like Michael Douglas and Steve Martin are the two ends, the two polarities the, of the midlife crisis. The comic narrative. and... Comic versus dramatic. Yep, so exactly. So it's either Michael Douglas in Basic Instinct or it's the moment in Father the Bride when Steve Martin freaks out about having to buy a bag of 10 hot dog buns when he only wants five. <laughs> That's Those are the two endpoints. Um, what you have, you know, recently is, I think, a later iteration of that, which kind of, you know, kind of gets that it's an absurd trope mm. or kind of gets that it's maybe not absurd, but gets that the midlife crisis affects more than just the dude having it mm. and that it's an inherently, you know, it's inherently kind of <laughs> indulgent trope. Yeah. And so you have films that tend to either try and leaven so series and films that try to leaven the midlife crisis trope with really forced quirkiness so yeah. shrinking yeah um i i swore <laughs> i'd never still, i swore so i'd never you, talk about you that were just, series you again. were just setting that up oh. that whole little that whole little monologue <laughs> was setting up it's all about setting up the knife in the back to shrinking the thing about it is like <laughs> i found shrinking so disturbing i've had to just i'm continually <laughs> rotating it in my mind to figure out what what triggered me about it that's part of it but also like but also i find shows like do or they just commit to to use your word you for the leaden maudlin morbid kind of solipsism of it more than any 90s you know classic midlife crisis text ever did so and often they alternate between the two so both shrinking and was it animals with james corden oh yeah like both those yeah. shows alternated between like just the most ab like just the most shamelessly maudlin tone mm. and these you know moments of just really forced eccentricity so yeah well both are the deceased wife yep trope and which precipitates the midlife crisis here. And, and well, it's really a late middle late a middle-aged crisis. It is. And that's shared with this text as well. I say, in both those cases, the deceased wife feels completely token. It's just a plot yeah. point. This yeah. this show, I think, is really interesting because it's, it's unstable. The show is unstable. And on the face of it, it's exactly the same plot. It's about a tech billionaire, so we don't really feel that sorry for it you know, in terms yeah. of his lifestyle, whose wife died and he's spiralling and he needs his son to help him. Yeah. But what it has is a completely different energy from the other shows, I think. And I'm not saying it's a masterpiece. I'm not saying it's the best comedy ever. But I feel this has a buoyancy and the, that they don't. And the ingredient is Rob Lowe. So yeah. Rob Lowe plays... I feel like you're, you're, you're more skeptical. I'm getting skeptical, skeptical <laughs> face from you. No, no, no. The show, the show is created by Rob Lowe and mm. his son, John Owen Lowe. And basically it's about a kind of tech guru who's spiralling and his son, played by his real son, has to come and you know save the day. So, so, th- so the son is played by his real son. Yeah, it's his real son, oh, and he and he and he, and, okay. he co- and he co-created the show as well. So, apparently, I think this is one of the first shows that's been inspired by social media trolling. Apparently, his son used to troll him on um, on Instagram. Oh. So they had a kind of you know passive aggressive comic rapport. So that partly inspired this this series and that's interesting because this i think this has a real kind of spikiness and hyperactivity that on the one hand i think is genuinely kooky but yeah. on the other hand isn't sentimental i mean i think rob lowe's persona here is very close to chris traeger from yes. parks and recreation yes, i mean it's, <laughs> it's basically like if chris you know because remember the last we hear chris and ann moved to indianapolis so it's like if they moved to indianapolis and sadly has passed away and now we've got chris trying to kind of deal with his life yeah and it's just like there's just that same manic offbeat awry energy he brings to that role in parks and that that willingness to kind of make himself ridiculous yeah. on the screen and to give himself into the role in a kind of completely committed way that just made me find this you know like find this this really like really kind of endearing like it's 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 spitfire it's screwball it's it's so hyperactive that it almost like it doesn't have time to lapse into anything particularly mortal it does i mean watching the show i kept on forgetting that his wife had died because it doesn't there's no sense of real tragedy to it it's more like the father is having a kind of psychotic break yeah and the father just is just doing crazy stuff yeah and the son has to come and i think rein him in i think this is certainly a show that it works when the son's on screen when, yep. the, when it's the father-son dynamic, 
when he's skewering him, when there's that <laughs> passive-aggressive rapport between them, that really works. I think when he's not there, <laughs> this is like Chris Traeger without, uh, without kind Ann, of foil. Without yeah. Ed Perkins. <laughs> yeah, but I guess, I guess to play devil's advocate on that, like Chris Traeger was always kind of talking primarily to Chris Traeger. Like there was something mm. about Chris Traeger that was always a conversation with himself. So even the opening scene here where he's talking to himself and he's dancing, it's like it's like Rob Lowe has this really incredible ability and Lee sees two texts to to kind of in both cases here and in Parks, it's like the character is simultaneously it's like he, he converses with people, but he's always having a conversation with them that's slightly awry to what the real conversation is. Yeah, it's true. And, th- it's and, true. Th- and that I think is a real screwball trope, like a real screw I think trope a lot. He, so he speaks he speaks a lot in the sides. Yes. That could also be internal monologue. Exactly. And I think that's a real hallmark of Screwball, that sense of speaking at slight cross purposes. Mm. Which and you know, when you're actually speaking at slight cross purposes, it's harder to clarify things than if you're speaking at total cross purposes. So yeah. it's full of these scenes in which like eighty percent of him is always talking to the person mm. in front of him, but twenty percent of him is always kind of inflecting the conversation in a direction that's more about what he's thinking and feeling at that particular moment. So mm. that, that sense of awryness and that sense of him never quite being present for me meant that it worked kind of regardless of who he was with yeah and worked even when he was alone though i agree i mean his son really really works well i mean i think they're the highlight i think partly what it is is that a lot of sitcoms workplace comedy is what the humor comes from identification relatability and because Mm -hmm. he's this highfalutin genius tech billionaire you don't have that point of identification until his son comes in Mm -hmm. and then you've got that you know, you've got that relatability of, you know, the son who's mm. who's gone against his father's wishes, who's defied, you know, his strictures and has disagreed with his lifestyle. You've got a much more relatable father-son dynamic there. It grounds the show in a way that could have just spun I, out to be, you know, quite an easy, you know, satire. I, I know what you mean. I feel like we're, you know, we're getting very deep into unstable here. Like, <laughs> but like, I, I kind of feel like part of what, part of what makes this kind of comic Rob Lowe persona work is just like, you know, 80% of him is focused on the conversation and 20% of him is slightly off, right? Yeah. The 80% of him that's focused is so passionately, enthusiastically focused. So it's like 80% of him is so there with you as a viewer and so there with the other characters in the room. But, but the think... tw- then the 20% of him is off. So it's like, it's like someone who's like hyper-present and slightly... And slightly abstracted at the same time, and for me that makes him relatable. Uh, this yeah, persona like, of Rob Lowe's I find relatable wherever like he is. The Chris Traeger character, you know, his his commitment to, to wellness and mm. his you know you know his perfectionistic qualities were so dis- discordant with the 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 workplace, the kind mm. of small you know the small stakes of the workplace in which he you know which he was he was sure. occupied and employed in Parks and Rec. Whereas here, because he's a genius, he's a billionaire. Mm. He's, you know, he, everything he says is like, you know, God's wisdom. There's not that same degree of, you know, uh, disjunction. There's a, a whole missed comic point there. It's like it's tra- like transplanting the Chris Trager pers- persona to a context where you lose the the satire is really blunted. But let, let me count. Let me count it with this. Like, <laughs> sure. Like in Parks. I mean, in Parks, he's he's the most powerful person in the building because he's yeah. there to do the economic downsizing but i agree it's the stakes are smaller than they are here the difference is when we meet him in parks he's at the peak of his career right like everyone even though they know he's kooky respects his judgment and he's like he's in charge of it whereas here sure he's wealthy and powerful but it's clear that everybody he works with thinks he's past it and everyone especially his assistant you know although she has moments of grudging admiration and she doesn't resent him it's clear that she thinks he's gone off the rails. So he does have, I agree, he does have more power here in the sense of the institution and the stakes are higher. But also there's more of a kind of scepticism around him and a sense that he's past it, which just, again, I thought those two things cancelled each other out. So I found him as immediate in Parks. I'm very invested in Rob Lowe. <laughs> Even are, talking, I'm are. very invested in Rob you Lowe. Are, in this. Are, I just, like I said, I just think just for me, and maybe just comes down to the persona, right? Like just that, that ability to be like so present for most of the conversation, mm. but a weird part of you is talking to someone else or talking to yourself. I just find that endearing in his, and I just feel like it's yeah. such a, and, and can we, was that something we can agree on? Because I, 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 I want us to agree on unstable. I want us to, <laughs> I want us to come, like the energy is completely different from, um, 
uh, uh, shrinking <laughs> and um, animals, right? Like it's it's yeah, it's yeah. too. No, no, like it's it's yeah. It it does no, have I, a screwball. I loved it. it. Does have a screwball energy. Yep. And his relationship with his son that's quite well drawn, and that that is funny and relatable. Those yep. scenes there. Uh, there's a, there's quite a few lazy jokes in this, yep. and I love I love lazy. <laughs> but but I, I like I like it's a bit like Always Sunny, like. I really love lazy comedy. Like I like it when the comedy is low effort, high energy. <laughs> this is like at yeah. I just I guess another way of putting it is like, yeah, his wife has passed away, and yeah, he's a tech billionaire. He doesn't feel like that to me. No, he, he just no. feels like the same character from Parks no. in a sitcom. And I know that it's not it's not as good as Parks. I mean, well, it's certainly not. It's not as good as it's not as good as Parks at its, at, at its peak. But <laughs> no, sure. But like, it's not claiming it to be. Occupies a different universe to Parks in terms of its. It's funny, like on that note, because we haven't done Parks. It's interesting because during the last big lockdown, we watched rewatched all of The Office and all the Parks. And I could say, you know, apart from the last couple of seasons, Office I thought was like just masterful. Parks, I was more mixed. Okay. So there were some great seasons, great characters. Love Ron, love Jerry. Just I found Parks a bit, a bit grating in some ways. Some of the characters a bit grating in a way that I didn't with The Office, um, and. Yeah, I but Chris, Chris and Anne really stood out to me as a couple that I was really attached to this kind of on this later viewing. So yeah, obviously it's not it's not in the yeah. in the, in the sphere of Parks. People but, have been searching for the the magic formula ever since Parks, and yeah. they still they're still searching. I think Superstore. I think Superstore gets. <laughs> have you seen Superstore? I have not. I'm I'm a big advocate of Superstore. <laughs> but look, yeah, I just I just felt like it was look, put it like this, in all these shows like. In animals and I'm really talking about animals and and, and um and yeah, those, those shows are actively bad. But, but in those not, shows, but in those shows, just this is just average. But in those shows, like the characters, like like take um, shrinking for an example, it doesn't feel like his wife's died. It doesn't feel like he's a therapist. It feels like this stuff is all just padding for a character study. Yeah. And it's the same here. I, yeah. None of the backstory really feels no, real. It it's, just, it's, it's just about it's just about a character study. But I just I found Rob Lowe's energy. Here's what I, I was like. It was almost like kind of contrapuntal. Like I felt it was contrapuntal in that I felt that Rob Lowe's energy here was so inimical to what this genre normally is. It was so antithetical to the leaden, maudlin eccentricity yeah. that I found that interesting and dynamic. And I found it it was good despite the genre. Like it's like seeing yeah. it's like seeing your least favorite genre. But someone doing something completely different with it. I'm realizing as I'm talking that I'm, I'm really invested <laughs> and unstable. Yeah, look, I think it's I think it's a sort of low energy, low effort comedy. High energy, low effort. High energy, high energy low effort. Five, That's five. a critical combination. <laughs> low energy, low effort is two and a half men. True. That can be good too. High energy, low effort it is, is, high is, energy, is always funny. Sure, it's a high energy, low low effort comedy that you expect to see on on network TV streaming at like. You know, 11 p.m. at night in Australia, or that I would get out in an entire box set from the, from <laughs> you the video would. store. You would, yeah, you would watch yeah. it repeatedly. Yeah, exactly. So I think in that sense, it's a masterpiece, and I'm very glad that we're both on the same page and that we both recognise how brilliantly this departs from the model of shrinking. I'm an hour. Okay, on to our um, archive corner. Look, I, I got to do it. I big game start. to big game to to hunt. Yep, I got, and I, I got to start. I got to start. You know, I got to start. The following occurs. Between 6 and 7 p.m. on Saturday, April 8th. My name is Jack Bauer. This is going to be the longest day of my life. <laughs> so I'm not sure if our friend Joe listens to the podcast. If you do, Joe, shout out, Joe. I think Joe, for about a year, every time I saw Joe, he said that. <laughs> like, I feel like that is for about a year in my life where Joe, where Joe is saying the opening of 24. It's like burned into my head. So, of course, they're talking about 24. Yeah. It's part of this wave of high concept shows that appeared in the um, early 2000s. It's, it's November. It first came out in November 2001, which is interesting. We'll come yeah, back to that day. Yeah. Um, in a way, I think these shows were kind of like the flip... Well, they were part of the revolution, third, third wave quality television revolution that came about with The Sopranos. I guess shows like Alias would be mm. in that category so and this Lost. Is the, this is the first wave of quality television. Third wave. Third wave. Third wave quality television. So... There's kind of historically there are considered to be three waves. So the second wave is the rise of cable television in the late seventies and early eighties, and the first wave is in like the sixties, fifties. Okay. So, but it's almost like this is the kind of commercial side of it yeah. compared to the Sopranos, what art house. But it's equally ingenious. And look, you know, the premise is fantastic. It's a twenty-four episode season. Each episode takes place in real time. Yeah, that's and a great. That's it's a an great incredible innovation. premise. Yeah. and over twenty-four hours traces out a single narrative and what's extraordinary is that this 
didn't just work for a single season. It worked for many, many seasons. And this is one of my kind of first memories of genuinely binging DVDs. So the first DVD I ever got, I'm sure I mentioned this, was my dad gave me season three of The Sopranos, The Mm. Present. I remember, let me flash back. I remember when I was a little kid, my dad went away on a business trip and brought back a VHS for me. It was, you know, Peter Coombe, that singer. It was a Peter Coombe thing. I remember looking at the VHS and trying to open it and thinking it was a book. Yeah. And I had a similar thing with the Sopranos DVD. I had no idea what it was. And when I figured out what it was, you know, and re- understood just that sense of fecundity and of richness, like there's 13 episodes here. Yeah. So that was my first encounter with DVDs. But th- it wasn't for a couple of years that I, I really got my head around binging DVDs. And 24 was how I did it in about yeah. 2002, 2003. And so that's, you know, I have such visceral memories of just watching DVD after DVD. It's an interesting show, isn't it? I mean, re-watching the pilot, I was thinking... It was interesting to think about TV time, temporality at the time. So mm. this was a time when reality television was becoming really big, mm. a completely new thing. And it feels like there's there's some kind of correlation between reality television and real-time television. Mm. And also a sense in which this may be the television show that most perfectly captures that transition from live viewing to DVD watching. Mm. So on the one hand, this is obviously eminently made for mm. DVD watching, right? I mm. mean, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of... There's an organic quality in watching the whole thing 24 hours mm. in, in DVD. Mm. I'm sure there are mm. many fans who watch it in 24 hours. And yet it also works as a commercial television artefact. It seems to me that the time the timeline actually jumps forward based on the commercial breaks. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Exactly. So on the one hand, it's so clearly made for DVD, and yet each episode is only about 40, 45 minutes. So to fill in the hour, it depends on ad breaks. Yeah. And indeed... From, the ellipses are built in, baked into the narrative. And from watching yeah. it now, you can calculate exactly how long the ad breaks were supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a series that, that uses ad breaks so innovatively and so it's so, you know inextricable from live television in that sense but obviously it's a single 24-hour text is made for dvd viewing yeah so it exists in this really interesting nexus yeah that for me brings back that time totally um i was also it's so funny it's made in november 2001 too because this well, to released me, in november released in so obviously so made, made well before september, september 11 and yet this feels like the quintessential post-september 11 text definitely like it's definitely it's like the series already anticipates the structure of feeling that would occur after September 11. Yeah. So, you know, a few things to say about that. Like, you know, the whole thing is about a terrorist threat. Yeah. But it's a terrorist threat that can only be comprehended an hour at a time. Yeah. So it's so traumatic. It's so overwhelming. It can be only comprehended now. So intricate. <laughs> so intricate. It also, it's a terrorist threat that creates anxiety, paranoia, um, within and without so mm. there's, a, there's a sense of the u.s borders being violated but mm. also of a conspiracy a mole the whole thing revolves around a plan to assassinate the president we probably should have said that so it's well a senator or a senator sorry it becomes yeah plan to to assassinate a senator um and the count and a counter-terrorist operation headed by Kiefer sutherland yeah but of course this also ends with a plane crash and yeah. a plane disaster and what must have been surely the first major depiction of a plane disaster on television after 9-11. Well, I know that there was a hiatus on playing TV series and movies Mm. on commercial television that might have triggered traumatic memories. Mm. So to have this as an opening pilot episode where it's so germane to that period Mm. would have been, yeah, like very profound and meaningful for the viewer. And you can only assume the reason I let it go ahead was because it just so acutely anticipated what the mood would be i mean this yeah. is like a text this is like a text made about 9-11 before mm. 9-11 or the response to 9-11 the response to 9-11 um and it's just there's such an incredible sense after the fear comes the anger it feels like jack bauer that his vigilante vigilantism within the mm. the government agency and his um it certainly feels like a kind of bush era yeah and text it, and interesting you think in that respect isn't it like you think of because you know one of the great genres to come out of 9-11 was the superhero film mm. but the superhero film depends upon you know the fantasy of the superhero film is well, the superhero is this like panoptic figure who can stand on top of a building command the cityscape and you know deflect any kind of threat it's that panoramic vantage point here it's kind of the opposite here it's you know you do get a, 
an overall picture by the end of the show, but it takes 24 hours. It can only be understood an hour at a time. It's composite, it's partial, it's very intricate, as you said. Mm. So it's a completely different... It's like, it's like there's such a dense sense of data... And yeah. such a dense sense of information and such a dense sense of complexity. I mean, watching and I thought, like, it's it's almost like... Because a large part of the... So there's, we probably should have said there's a couple of different narrative strains. There's the info that comes through that a senator's going to be assassinated. Mm. There's Jack Bauer as a counter-terrorist agent. It says his daughter who goes out partying without permission. And there's the terrorist arriving in America on a plane. Mm. So a lot of it takes place on the plane... And I was going to say that, you know, watching it, it's almost like the characters, there's this constant imminent flow of information around yeah. them, like air around a plane. Mm. And the last image is this incredible shot of the terrorist hijacking the plane, blowing it up, jumping into space, yeah, and a parachute extending. Yeah, was... So just this sense of suspension, of yeah. complete freefall in a kind of, in this ambient, it's a circumambient kind of imminent murk. Mm. It's mm. so, like, it's so evocative Mm. It just so perfectly captures the kind of the dense yet diffuse sense of fear. Yeah, yeah. I think there's also something, um, you know, that the, there's that feeling post nine eleven as well mm. that that terrorists don't just present a threat to the, the government superstructure, but they're coming for home and hearth. Yes, absolutely. And that's why you know Jack Bowers, his his most, you know, his most paranoid fears come to pass in mm. this pilot. And that, you know, literalization of this pervasive anxiety about terrorism mm. is so palpable in that immediate context post 9-11. What are they going to come, come for next? You know, our mail system, our, you know, our, our, our wives, our daughters, mm. you know, our, our public, public space. You know, it's, it, it really effectively taps into that mood. That's, that's, such, a, that's such a great way to put it. Because, like, yeah, you're exactly right. Like, it's, I imagine if you, you, know, you compare it to earlier counter-terrorism narratives in in the 90s films and stuff like they're nearly always in a military or strictly espionage conflict you know what i mean like yeah. it's about target government buildings that are targeted yeah. or military bases you're right here here there's like a sense of a threat that's as diffuse as public space itself yeah which i think works beautifully for a show set in la yes so i feel like so much of it's like it's like the la sprawl is like this mythology in american film and television that just can become the reflection of whatever cult, the cultural anxiety of the moment is. That's right. And here, it's all about that new sense of porosity yeah. and exposure and vulnerability. So when we see the senator for the most, the senator spends the whole episode on a giant, on adjacent to a giant Michael Mann-esque balcony overlooking LA. Yeah. And the connective tissue in the episode is often aerial shots of LA. Mm. And as you said, that connection between Jack Bauer's personal and professional life gradually constellates around him and his wife, his ex-wife, his, you know, where, 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 it's hard, you know, his, yeah, his it's estranged hard wife, yeah. um, trying to track down where she's gone mm. on the night of, say, you know, it's not much of a spoiler, in the next episode she gets abducted. So yeah. it's her kind of vanishing into the LA night sprawl. Yeah. And that becomes, it's like, it's like you step outside your house and you've got the sprawl of LA, which collapses into the sprawl of the skies, the sprawls of aerial threats. Yeah, yeah. And there's a great moment towards it's the very... Incursions everywhere. Yeah. And a great sense at the very end where um, his wife goes out to look for her yeah. with another parent and they almost, they just, just miss her at an intersection. Yeah. So that sense yeah. of near connection. So just, yeah. It it's just like, yeah, that sense of porosity and that sense of threat, which is you know, is there in the episode but extends to the structure of the episode, the way in which the episode unfolds in real time, the experience of watching it as a DVD object. Yeah, yeah. It's, I think it's it maybe the quintessential post-9-11 yeah. TV well, series. Well, I, having never seen it before, mm. not even a, a minute of it, mm. I, I only know it by reputation mm. in the sense that not only does it tap into that structure of feeling, like you say, post-9-11, it actually laid the groundwork for the response to it especially uh, Jack Bauer's extreme yep. acts of vigilantism. Mm. Um, they, a lot of people say normalised and naturalised the enhanced okay. interrogation yep. programs that the US embarked upon later yes. on. And I was thinking even that the Dennis Haysbert character also foreshadows the Obama era Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. And it's funny, like I'm thinking what would the tail end of that be? And I'm wondering if maybe like a film like Contagion is the tail end. So mm. like 
that's such I watched that during the pandemic and it's such an interesting film because you know like like in 24 you have this ambient threat but it's pandemic rather than terrorism mm. and you have the Matt Damon character is the protecting hearth and home character and mm. at first he's this really central figure you know he keeps his daughter home but gradually over the course of the film his agency wanes and instead you have these instead it's kind of the female body that becomes a site where the panther you know that's the Gwyneth Paltrow is the person who gets it Marion Cotillard's the person who's taken hostage Jennifer Ely is the person who tries the vaccine to make sure mm. it works Kate Winslet dies on the front line there's a sense of you know, and it ends, you know, in the traditional way with Matt Damon giving his daughter a prom at home instead of at school. So there's mm. still that hearth and home narrative, but there's a sense that this pandemic represents a new kind of global threat that has completely exhausted that hearth and home strategy. Yeah. So I wonder if that, that feels like a bookend. Um, I was going to say too, like it reminds me of like final the Final Destination film. Yeah. So I, I was, there's this idea I like, um, what's his name? forget the guy's name but he's got this idea he says that the dominant idea of um the dominant feeling of the noughties was not remediation but pre-mediation this sense this compulsion to premediate any disaster before it happened mm. so you know this this anxiety in media about anticipating and containing the next 9-11 yeah and that's exactly what this feels like it's about like hour by hour it's trying to pre-mediate catastrophe like which is even eerier given that it came out before 9-11 or after just but but, but it, it was made before 9-11 yeah, yeah, yeah. and so it didn't i mean i feel like that's what final destination's about right yeah. like we know catastrophe's yeah. coming how can we contain it yeah well a lot of people I mean, 9-11 itself was a was obviously inspired by action movies yeah well exactly it used a lot of the tropes of yeah you know, of hollywood disaster movies mm. you know so it was already the, the actual disaster was already in you know mediatized before it before it happened so here you have just maybe 9-11 was pre-mediated. Yeah. And so, so here you have that weird transition where a text... Yeah, it's almost like you have this text that anticipates something like 9-11 happening, yeah. being made just before 9-11 yeah. and coming out just after. Yeah. So I just took me back to a time and place. And you know, at the time, I just remember being so overwhelmed by the experience of binging. I didn't think much about whether I thought it was good or not. I just was addicted. Yeah. Rewatching the pilot, I was like, this is masterful. Yeah. Like this is It's very effective. The split screen, oh, the the ticking clock. The the, the split screen I go to the split screen like such a thing. And I remember that Mike Figures film Time Code. Yeah. Which is like yeah. four different screens at once. Like that yeah. was such a thing at the time. It reminded me of that. Yeah, the clock, all the shots of like satellites. Yeah. yeah. Satellites <laughs> transmitting data. Yeah. I like I I'm I want to rewatch this now because I never got beyond the first two seasons. So I really? watch. Okay. I, it's like I watched forty-eight hours, yeah. and I was it's like, nine seasons. That's extraordinary, yeah. isn't it? Like it's extraordinary that this happened at all. Yeah. Let alone that each. And yeah. I, I'm not going to give anything away, but I remember this season has like some crazy twists. Like yeah. watching, and I was well, like, even the wow. pilot has about four or five twists, including I think the five-minute mark where Jack Bauer shoots one of his superiors with a trank gun. I know, <laughs> but doesn't that catch that vigilante thing that you said? Yeah. Because like he's at work, as someone he suspects, and the paranoia is so great. I mean, yeah. he's working in a government agency yeah, high yeah. up that he, he tranks <laughs> he, he tranks, tranks a superior. Yeah, that's hilarious. That completely captures what you're yeah. saying about yeah. that new that vigilantism in all yeah. facets of life. Yeah. I was going to say too a lot of just early naughty's faces here. Yeah, yeah the yeah. haircuts, the yeah. faces, the cold and just stuff, the Coldplay parachutes poster. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a, it's a period piece now because mm. enough times elapsed it's over twenty years, so it it definitely feels of its time in a way that even watching it ten years ago wouldn't have. No. Because um, this, this, you know, terrorist, well, it's still obviously an ever-present threat in the society. It doesn't have the same, no. you know, purchase on the public imaginary and this, as it did then. And this sense of this world that's porous and open-ended and diffuse. I mean, we just, we're used to it now. Yeah. And yeah. to some extent, we've learned to live within it. But at yeah. the time, it felt so horrifying. Yeah. I'm really curious about, like, the not the reboot, but there's, like, 24 Legacy yeah, or something legacy, like it. Yeah. So yeah. what does it look like? Yeah. But also, like... Each episode, I mean, however, even if it declines in quality, there must be something pretty ingenious in each season Absolutely, to get yeah. that 24 hours going. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of almost felt like maybe this is a show we need to watch together after Pilot. Like, I want to get back into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, more... yeah. The, the clock thing is ingenious. Oh, and someone who, who often doesn't like um, chapterized uh, movies, because yeah. this, this just works brilliantly, because it lets you know how much more there is yeah. to go, and it 
I don't know, it foreshadows twists in a way that and adds the anticipation. I remember when it came up saying eight minutes in, I paused it to see where it was. And indeed, yeah. it was eight minutes. <laughs> like, yeah, that's before these were first ad yeah, break yeah. denatures it. But yeah. yeah, look, I thought this was one of those ones. That was, it, was, it, was great, it was a great spot. A great spot way, of, way know, better than I remembered. Yeah. Anyway, what, what's your choice yeah. next week? Um, so consistent with this, you know, uh, slight reversion to quality, uh, or third wave quality third wave, televisual yeah. series. Yeah. I thought we'd look at another one, which yeah. is similar themes to yeah. 24, yeah. but one I've never experienced. I know you were a big fan of it mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Americans. Oh, fantastic. And you know what? I haven't seen the last season yet. Okay. I think I might have mentioned to you that like the Americans was on those shows, like back in the kind of peak stuff being unavailable in Australia era, like mm. it was impossible to access. Like yeah. it wasn't on any streaming services. That's the reason I didn't watch it. The DVDs came out like two two years after yeah, this. Yeah, so they were quite hard to source. So I lost, I lost, um, I lost momentum. Yeah. Um, that's a great suggestion. Yeah, it's Partly, all streaming now, so it's all on one platform. Oh, that's crazy. So there you go. Yeah, fantastic. I feel like that's, that's a really big show. It'll be fun to talk about. And mm. I've forgotten a lot of it too. So just, and it's got Margot Martindale. <laughs> so, in fact, it's got three people from Cocaine Bear. Um, Kerry Russell, Margot Martindale and Matthew Reese. Oh, wow. Cocaine, there you go. Like Cocaine Bear is part of the Americans Extended Universe. Oh, the texture. Yeah. Americans. That'll be great. I feel like Americans is like a nice kind of sequel to 24. And yeah, it feels definitely of a piece. Also, I don't want to give too much away, but like I just look at, wait till you get to that 80s chilly Washington DC vibe. <laughs> a lot of it takes place in just like empty DC parks in winter. Nice. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, I'm Billy. I'm Drew. That was Pilot Club. <laughs>